Good evening. Anti-government protests in Havana. More questions about U.S. ties to the alleged assassins in Haiti. Texas Democrats say they'll walk out again to stop a GOP-sponsored voting bill. And the Legal Aid Society sues on behalf of disabled homeless people here in New York City. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Monday, July 12th, 2021. Large contingent. Pardon me. Large contingents of Cuban police patrolled the capital of Havana on Monday following rare protests around the island nation against food shortages and high prices amid the coronavirus crisis. Cuba's president said the demonstrations were stirred up on social media by Cuban-Americans in the United States. Meanwhile, Mexico's president, André Manuel López Obrador, rejected military intervention on the island nation. He's at odds, the island nation, which has been at odds with the United States for more than 60 years. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez made the call for U.S. military involvement in Cuba earlier today. We want to shine a light on what's happening in Cuba right now. People are dying, people are getting beaten, and people are suffering, and they're starving. But we also need intervention from the federal government of some form or fashion, whether it's food, medicine, or militarily. We need them to coalesce the international community together. Suarez's comments came after President Joe Biden said he supported the Cuban protesters. We call on the government, government of Cuba, to refrain from violence or attempts to silence the voice of the people of Cuba. And we're also closely following the developments in Haiti in the wake of the horrific assassination of the president that recently took place. The people of Haiti deserve peace and security, and Haiti's political leaders need to come together for the good of their country. Over the weekend, I dispatched a a high-level expert delegation to assess the situation and to determine where the United States can offer our support. And finally, as a close neighbor and friend of the people of both Cuba and Haiti, the United States stands ready to continue to provide assistance. And I'll have more for you as we move on. And that was President Biden. We'll be discussing Haiti later in this newscast. At a news conference today, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki was asked if the economic effects of the embargo against Cuba by the U.S. might have contributed to the unrest, which comes after former President Trump had withdrawn numerous concessions made by his predecessors, Barack Obama, concessions Biden had campaigned to reinstate but has failed to do so. Psaki says the U.S. sends plenty of aid to Cuba. Even under the embargo, there are a number of exemptions, I should say, humanitarian assistance, medical supplies that we've continued to provide assistance to the people of Cuba, even with that in place. But I have nothing to preview for you in terms of a change of policy. But even though the president said he was going to reverse the policy, you can't say when he plans to reverse the policy? Uh, again, these protests happened yesterday, over the last two days. He made the promise in September. I, I, I certainly understand, Caitlin, but there's nothing I can preview for you. But to be accurate, there are exemptions that we can send medical supplies. We can send humanitarian supplies. That's something we've been doing for some time from the U.S. government. But Code Pink activist Medea Benjamin says Saki is not being honest. Oh, my God, that is such a lie. And it's so disgusting that the Biden administration is acting like it cares about the well-being of the Cuban people because Trump 
put all of these new restrictions on the Cuban economy, 242 new course of measures. And Biden, when he was on the campaign trail, said that these were not good, that he was going to lift them. And then he came into the White House and said, well, now we're reviewing the policy. Well, with one stroke of the pen, he could lift all of those sanctions and he hasn't done it. So he has been continuing this maximum pressure campaign that is really a kind of economic warfare during a time of a pandemic when the Cuban economy is already reeling from the shutdown of tourism, which is billions of dollars in loss, as well as other losses related to COVID and the increased need for income to be able to take care of all the people during COVID time, including vaccinations. And yet the Biden administration has continued this noose around the neck of the Cuban people and now pretends that he cares about their well-being. But what about this protest? It seemed like these are people who felt that they had a uh, beef with the government. What you see in the day to day, if you live in Cuba, is that there's uh, not medicines in the pharmacy, that there's barely food on the shelves. And who are you going to get angry at? Uh, You're going to get angry at your own government. But many people in Cuba understand that it really is the embargo, that it's the heart of their sufferings. There's a lot of division inside Cuba, but there's pent up anger and frustration about the economy. And that combined with the push from the Cuban-American community and from U.S. taxpayer programs that AID runs, as well as propaganda programs like Radio and TV Marti that we, the taxpayers, pay $28 million a year for. All of this is combined now to the perfect storm to be pushing what the U.S. has always wanted to push for since the time of the 1959 revolution, which is regime change. Where does the U.S.-Cuban relationship go from here? We have been uh, involved in a very intense campaign with more progressive Cuban-Americans and people all over this country to push for Biden to follow the path of Obama and lift these restrictions and start normalizing relations. Now that these protests have broken out, there's going to be a lot more pressure from the U.S. Cuban-American community to not provide any relief for the Cuban people. What some of them are calling for is actually U.S. military intervention, including the mayor of Miami. So where does it go? I think we in the rational, progressive community that want to see really an alleviation of the Cuban suffering have to do more to pressure our Congress and the administration to lift the restrictions on remittances so that people can send money to Cuba, to lift the restrictions on trade, to stop the embargo of fuel shipments going to Cuba. There is even a difficulty of Cuba for getting syringes for their COVID vaccination campaign. And American people have raised over $400,000 to buy 6 million syringes. So these are the different ways that we can try to show our support for the Cuban people and our concern for their well-being. What would happen if Cuba and the United States found a rapprochement? 
Well, we saw it to a limited extent under Obama when there was a lifting of restrictions on a lot of the trade. And Cubans started up a lot of small businesses, and the government in Cuba eased up on allowing more of the private enterprise. And there was a real flowering of small entrepreneurs in Cuba, a huge increase in the tourism industry coming from the United States. The cruise ships started going into Havana, and it was very good for the Cuban economy which is why when Trump came in, he put a stop to it because he was listening to the right-wing Cubans in Miami who want to use it as a selling point in electoral politics. And it is really up to the Cuban people to decide how much capitalism they want, but it's not up to us to stop them from being able to do the most minimal kinds of trade deals with groups in the U.S. If we did have good relations with Cuba, the agricultural industry in this country wants to sell more rice and chicken to Cuba. The medical industry wants to work with Cuba's very high-tech biotech industry. And there are cities throughout this country that have passed resolutions saying they want normal trade and economic relations with Cuba. So we should do it. It would be a win-win situation, except for the small right-wing group of Cuban-Americans. Code Pink activist Medea Benjamin. Besides the effects of the U.S. blockade, Cuba currently faces its worst wave of COVID-19. As of July 12th, the country has reported 238,491 coronavirus cases, 1,537 related deaths, 47 of which were reported yesterday. And on Sunday, the Haitian National Police arrested Christian Emmanuel Sanon, a Florida-based physician, and charged him with masterminding the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse. HMP Director Leon Charles said during the search of Sanon's residence, quote, we found a DEA cap, six cases for rifles and pistols, boxes of 9 and 12 millimeter cartridges, four plates of the Dominican Republic. I imagine that means automobile license plates, unloaded pistol magazines, two vehicles and correspondence addressed to several sectors of the country. And that was reported by Haiti Libre newspaper. Meanwhile, an advisor to President Moise, Alexander Telefort, says the president did have his enemies. To show that Haiti can build a new country, a new nation with justice with the respect of the fundamental rights for the people. So you, you cannot do that without correct some bad or, I don't know, wrong interests, established interests. Meanwhile, in Washington, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, said the United States has no plans to send troops to the Caribbean island nation, despite requests by some people in the Haitian government for the U.S. to send troops. Along with the uh, U.S., Haiti is the oldest republic in the Western Hemisphere. The last time the U.S. sent troops was back in the 1990s during the Clinton administration after a coup unseated then-President Jean Breton Aristide. Jen on Haiti. We are uh, have provided um, $75 million for a wide range of issues, including democratic governance, health, education, agricultural development, and strengthening of pre-election activities, even before, of course, last week. That was as of January. And that we've long been working with uh, directly with uh, 
the, uh, in, in lifting up, empowering, and training uh, Haiti's law enforcement, improving, I should say, Haiti's law enforcement capacity. This is a situation, though, in Haiti where the determination of what the next steps are, what the path forward is going to be up to the people of Haiti, who is going to be leading the country moving forward. When is it safe to have elections? How will they work together to figure out what their needs are and how can we work with them to assess what those needs are and how we can help meet them here from the government? So obviously, they're from the United States, I should say. So obviously, there's a great deal of uncertainty. There's a lot more information we need. Yesterday was just the beginning, not the beginning, but an important step in our engagement that will certainly continue from a range of entities in the federal government moving forward. And that is Jen Psaki in Washington. According to investigations, Senon contacted a U.S.-based Venezuelan security company to recruit the members of the commando group who attacked Moise's residence. And the uh, there's been several newspaper accounts, uh, including I think the best have been in the Miami Herald, that have been closely following events with the investigation. And it seems to be an organization, a small one-man show that allegedly trained these now going on 30 different people who were involved in the takeover and that uh, this person came to the United States from Venezuela several years ago and has several offices in the Miami area in a place called uh, Doral, the Doral neighborhood in Miami in South Florida. And there seems to be some connection. The Doral is the same neighborhood where there was a Trump-owned golf club where it was traced back the attempt by some mercenaries to invade Venezuela during the Trump administration was traced back to a conspiracy that seemed to have been launched from the 12th fairway green on the Doral Trump golf course. And that's not me saying that. That was reported verbatim from the Miami Herald. So we're definitely going to be following this. Some might remember Back in 1993, during the Iran-Contra hearings, actually before that, uh, Lieutenant Oliver North said he claimed that he had saved Haiti from its misery. I forget his exact words right offhand, but he had uh, prevented Haiti from slipping into some sort of nightmare. It was Haiti's nightmare is what he recalled. I recall now that he called it, and uh, there was very little investigation into what happened after that and what Oliver North's role in Haiti. Haiti, um, you might know, uh, is a transit point for cocaine, 50 tons a year in the 90s. Actually, now it's up to 67 tons transship to from Colombia to the United States every year through Haiti, according to records by the Drug Enforcement Administration. So there's still a lot to be learned. Others have told me they think it's oil. But we'll see. We're going to follow the story as it develops. OK. Meanwhile, Democrats in the Texas legislature on Monday bolted for Washington, D.C. and say they were ready to remain there for weeks in a second revolt against the GOP overhaul of election laws, forcing a dramatic new showdown over voting rights in America. Private planes carrying a large group of Democrats took off from an airport in Austin, skipping town just days before the Texas House of Representatives was expected to give early approval to sweeping new voting restrictions in a special legislative session ordered by Republican Governor Greg Abbott. By leaving, Democrats again denied the GOP majority a quorum to pass bills barely a month after a walkout thwarted the first push for sweeping new voting restrictions in Texas, including outlawing 24-hour polling places, banning ballot drop boxes, and empowering partisan poll watchers. Vice President Kamala Harris is the point person in the Biden administration's 
push for uh, stopping these GOP voter uh, voter laws, and uh, she spoke about it earlier today. Extraordinary courage and commitment. I met with them when many of them traveled to Washington, D.C. We sat down and had an extensive conversation in the Roosevelt Room in the White House, and I applaud them standing for the rights of all Americans and all Texans to express their voice through their vote unencumbered. Um, I will say that, that they, are, um, they are leaders who are marching in the path that so many others before did when they fought and many died for our right to vote. And I'll say this later in my comments, but um, I do believe that fighting for the right to vote is as American as apple pie. It is so fundamental to fighting for the principles of our democracy. And that's Kamala Harris speaking earlier today. Jen Psaki gave a preview of tomorrow's speech by President Biden on voting rights. That he himself wanted to deliver. Um, he'll lay out the moral case for why denying the right to vote is a form of suppression and a form of silencing. And how he will use, he will redouble his commitment to using every tool at his disposal to continue to fight to protect the fundamental right of Americans to vote against the onslaught of voter suppression laws based on a dangerous and discredited conspiracy theory that culminated in assault on our capital. The greatest irony of the big lie is that no election in our history has met such a high standard, with over 80 judges, including those appointed by his predecessor, throwing out all challenges. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And President Trump appeared last night at the or over the weekend at the Conservative Political Action Conference. That's the conservative organization where he has been attempting his comeback after losing the election and claiming he had actually not lost the election. President Trump, former President Trump, talked about election fraud repeatedly in the rambling speech. The election fraud of 2020 is the single most requested topic for me and others to talk about ahead of the border even ahead of crime, because think of what they've done. What they've done is so sad. Look what's happened to our country in just a short number of months. We are not going to let it be taken away from us by a small group of radical left Marxist maniacs. We're not going to let it. Our movement is the greatest in American history, and it has just begun. And as President Trump, former President Trump, uh, it's hard to get that out of my mind. He then went on to tell the assembled cheering thousands of conservative activists that there's only one cure for what ails America. If you want more police and more cops on the streets, vote for America first Republicans. Or let's put it very simply, vote for MAGA. Make America great again. MAGA. MAGA, MAGA, MAGA. And that's President, former President Trump. Switching to New York City news in the moments we have left, on Saturday, dozens of housing rights activists converged on Gracie Mansion, demanding that the mayor uh, ease back on his plan to evict homeless people from hotels across the city. They claim that uh, the mayor is just being unfair 
to thousands of homeless people who during the height of COVID were allowed to sleep two people to a room in hotels, some of them luxury hotels like the Lucerne on the Upper West Side. That group of people gathered on Saturday. And Joshua Goldfein is a uh, lawyer with the Legal Aid Society. They are uh, suing the city for not properly screening these homeless people as they're removed from these hotels for disabilities, which it turns out under the law must be uh, given uh, appropriate housing if they suffer from a whole range of disabling uh, situations. We spoke with Joshua Goldfein earlier today. So we, several years ago, settled a, a case against the city that requires them to accommodate people's disabilities in the shelter system and to ensure that people with disabilities get a shelter placement that is appropriate to their needs. What we have found in recent weeks is that as they have been moving people back out of hotels into congregate sites, they are proceedings so quickly that they have not met their obligations under that agreement to assess people for what needs they may have and then to provide them with a shelter placement that meets their needs. But what are we talking about as far as any disability that a person might have? We have people with mobility impairments who need. How do they decide what a what is a legal disability? And this is a well-established federal law. There's that's followed by every public accommodating entity. There's not a lot of mystery about those questions. The law says that people have to have meaningful access to services. If you have a disability that limits your ability to have meaningful access and there's a reasonable accommodation that the agency can make to afford you that access, then they're required to make it. If you are deaf, then you might need visual alarms so that if the fire alarm goes off in the night, you, you, don't, you don't miss that. If you are mobility impaired, then they shouldn't require you to climb up steps to uh, make an application or to receive a bed at night. If you have a mental health issue that prevents you from being in a congregate setting or for waiting for an excessive amount of time, then they should find a way to deliver the service in a way that does not aggravate your mental health needs. How many people would this affect, do you think? As a result of the original lawsuit, the city did a population analysis in which they determined that over two-thirds of the single adults in the shelter system have a disability that is requires some kind of a consideration in their placement. Most people require at least some kind of screening to determine what it is that they need. It may turn out the shelter that the person is assigned to does meet their need, and then the city can move on to the next person. At the bare minimum, they have to screen everybody to determine who it is that has a disability that needs accommodating. They don't even know that right now. Has the city been fighting the suit? Yes. They submitted papers opposing our motion today. But we're in court tomorrow, and a lot can happen in two days. If it's the law, that's the way it should be. It should already be decided. The dispute here is about what's happening on the ground. So it's their position that what they've done is set up a process that should protect everybody. But in fact, what we're seeing is that the process is not protecting everybody. And that's why we think they need to stop what they're doing, take a, a pause, refine their process, and make sure that the staff all understand it. And most importantly now is that they, they provide enough time for the staff to do the work that the city is asking them to do. If they say screen 200 residents of a shelter overnight, there's no way that the staff can perform the task that CHS is asking them to do. They have to provide sufficient time for it to ha actually happen. What happens next? 
the judge will determine whether they can resume or whether they need to, to pause or whether they need to implement something while they continue. But the goal here, again, is to put in place appropriate safeguards to protect people. The right place, of course, is permanent housing. If the city could make that happen, that would solve all the problems. If in the short term they're not going to be able to move everyone to permanent housing, at a minimum they have to shelter them in a place that accommodates their needs. So this is different from Randy Mastro's suit at the Lucerne. Totally different issue. Randy Mastro was contesting the placement of people in a hotel. He claimed that um, people there were not receiving services, but that wasn't a legal claim and it also wasn't true. If anything, people got better services in the hotel. What does this mean for homeless people in New York? The problem is and always has been permanent housing affordable, permanent housing. If the city would commit to ensuring that people had a place to actually live, then we wouldn't have to have these disputes about what happens in the shelter system. And that's Joshua Goldfein, an attorney with the Legal Aid Society. And finally, the city faces a growing number of COVID-19 cases caused by the Delta variant. In eastern Brooklyn and southeast Queens, just over a third of residents are fully vaccinated. In much of the Bronx, just 40 percent of residents are fully vaccinated. That's according to the city. In Manhattan, western Brooklyn and northern Queens, two-thirds or more of the residents are fully vaccinated. Just over half of all city residents are fully vaccinated and city statistics show the cumulative number of vaccinated people plateauing significantly in recent weeks. The number of reported cases on the seven-day average has ticked up slightly for the first time in months to 328 on Saturday from about 250 two weeks earlier. The reported cases remained below the 500 threshold that the city has used to signify a significant change in the severity of the pandemic. Meanwhile, on Sunday, Eric Adams, winner of the Democratic mayoral primary, recommended that New Yorkers wear masks to err on the side of caution. And that's some of the news for Monday, July 12, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.